Chapter Four of Cyrus the Great by Jacob Abbott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah. Croesus, B.C. seven eighteen to five forty five. The scene of our narrative must now be changed for a time from Persia and Media in the east to asia minor in the west where the great croesus originally king of lydia was at this time gradually extending his empire along the shores of the aegean sea the name of croesus is associated in the minds of men with the idea of boundless wealth the phrase as rich as croesus having been a common proverb in all the modern languages of europe for many centuries it was to this croesus king of lydia whose story we are about to relate that the proverb alludes the country of lydia over which this famous sovereign originally ruled was in the western part of asia minor bordering on the aegean sea croesus himself belonged to a dynasty or race of kings called the Myrmnidae. the founder of this line was gygus who displaced the dynasty which preceded him and established his own by a revolution effected in a very remarkable manner the circumstances were as follows the name of the last monarch of the old dynasty the one namely whom gygus displaced was candelus gygus was a household servant in candelus's family a sort of slave in fact and yet as such slaves often were in those rude days a personal favourite and boon companion of his master candelus was a dissolute and unprincipled tyrant he had however a very beautiful and modest wife whose name was nicia condylus was very proud of the beauty of his queen and was always extolling it though as the event proved he could not have felt for her any true and honest affection in some of his revels with gygus when he was boasting of nicias charms he said that the beauty of her form and figure when unrobed was even more exquisite than that of her features and finally the monster growing more and more excited and having rendered himself still more of a brute than he was by nature by the influence of wine declared that gygus should see for himself he would conceal him he said in the queen's bedchamber while she was undressing for the night gygus remonstrated very earnestly against this proposal it would be doing the innocent queen he said a great wrong he assured the king too that he believed fully all that he said about nicias beauty without applying such a test and he begged him not to insist upon a proposal with which it would be criminal to comply the king however did insist upon it and gygus was compelled to yield whatever is offered as a favour by a half-intoxicated despot 
to an humble inferior it would be death to refuse gyges allowed himself to be placed behind a half-open door of the king's apartment when the king retired to it for the night there he was to remain while the queen began to unrobe herself for retiring with a strict injunction to withdraw at a certain time which the king designated and with the utmost caution so as to prevent being observed by the queen gyges did as he was ordered the beautiful queen laid aside her garments and made her toilet for the night with all the quiet composure and confidence which a woman might be expected to feel while in so sacred and inviolable a sanctuary and in the presence and under the guardianship of her husband just as she was about to retire to rest some movement alarmed her it was gyges going away she saw him she instantly understood the case she was overwhelmed with indignation and shame she however suppressed and concealed her emotions she spoke to candilus in her usual tone of voice and he on his part secretly rejoiced in the adroit and successful manner in which his little contrivance had been carried into execution the next morning nicia sent by some of her confidential messengers for gyges to come to her he came with some forebodings perhaps but without any direct reason for believing that what he had done had been discovered nicia however informed him that she knew all and that either he or her husband must die gyges earnestly remonstrated against this decision and supplicated forgiveness he explained the circumstances under which the act had been performed which seemed at least so far as he was concerned to palliate the deed the queen was however fixed and decided it was wholly inconsistent with her ideas of womanly delicacy that there should be two living men who had both been admitted to her bedchamber the king she said by what he has done has forfeited his claims to me and resigned me to you if you will kill him seize his kingdom and make me your wife all shall be well otherwise you must prepare to die from this hard alternative gyges chose to assassinate the king and to make the lovely object before him his own the excitement of indignation and resentment which glowed upon her cheek and with which her bosom was heaving made her more beautiful than ever how shall our purpose be accomplished asked gyges the deed she replied shall be perpetrated in the very place which was the scene of the dishonour done to me i will admit you into our bedchamber in my turn and you shall kill condylus in his bed when night came nicias stationed gyges again behind the same door where the king had placed him he had a dagger in his hand he waited there till condylus was asleep then at a signal given him by the queen he entered 
and stabbed the husband in his bed he married nicia and possessed himself of the kingdom after this he and his successors reigned for many years over the kingdom of lydia constituting the dynasty of the Myrmnidae, from which in process of time king croesus descended the successive sovereigns of this dynasty gradually extended the lydian power over the countries around them the name of croesus's father who was the monarch that immediately preceded him was aliatus aliatus waged war toward the southward into the territories of the city of miletus he made annual incursions into the country of the milesians for plunder always taking care however while he seized all the movable property that he could find to leave the villages and towns and all the hamlets of the laborers without injury the reason for this was that he did not wish to drive away the population but to encourage them to remain and cultivate their lands so that there might be new flocks and herds and new stores of corn and fruit and wine for him to plunder from in succeeding years at last on one of these marauding excursions some fires which were accidentally set in a field spread into a neighboring town and destroyed among other buildings a temple consecrated to minerva after this aliatus found himself quite unsuccessful in all his expeditions and campaigns he sent to a famous oracle to ask the reason you can expect no more success replied the oracle until you rebuild the temple that you have destroyed but how could he rebuild the temple the site was in the enemy's country his men could not build an edifice and defend themselves at the same time from the attacks of their foes he concluded to demand a truce of the milesians until the reconstruction should be completed and he sent ambassadors to miletus accordingly to make the proposal the proposition for a truce resulted in a permanent peace by means of a very singular stratagem which thrasybulus the king of miletus practiced upon aliatus it seems that aliatus supposed that thrasybulus had been reduced to great distress by the loss and destruction of provisions and stores in various parts of the country and that he would soon be forced to yield up his kingdom this was in fact the case but thrasybulus determined to disguise his real condition and to destroy by an artifice all the hopes which aliatus had formed from the supposed scarcity in the city when the herald whom aliatus sent to miletus was about to arrive thrasybulus collected all the corn and grain and other provisions which he could command and had them heaped up in a public part of the city where the herald was to be received so as to present indications of the most ample abundance of food he collected a large body of his soldiers too and gave them leave to feast themselves without restriction on what he had thus gathered accordingly when the herald came in 
to deliver his message he found the whole city giving up to feasting and revelry and he saw stores of provisions at hand which were in process of being distributed and consumed with the most prodigal profusion the herald reported this state of things to aliotis aliotis then gave up all hopes of reducing miletus by famine and made a permanent peace binding himself to its stipulations by a very solemn treaty to celebrate the event too he built two temples to minerva instead of one the story is related by herodotus of a remarkable escape made by arian at sea which occurred during the reign of aliotis the father of croesus we will give the story as herodotus relates it leaving the reader to judge for himself whether such tales were probably true or were only introduced by herodotus into his narrative to make his histories more entertaining to the grecian assemblies to whom he read them arian was a celebrated singer he had been making a tour in sicily and in the southern part of italy where he had acquired considerable wealth and he was now returning to corinth he embarked at tarentum which is a city in the southern part of italy in a corinthian vessel and put to sea when the sailors found that they had him in their power they determined to rob and murder him they accordingly seized his gold and silver and then told him that he might either kill himself or jump overboard into the sea one or the other he must do if he would kill himself on board the vessel they would give him decent burial when they reached the shore arian seemed at first at a loss how to decide in so hard an alternative at length he told the sailors that he would throw himself into the sea but he asked permission to sing them one of his songs before he took the fatal plunge they consented he accordingly went into the cabin and spent some time in dressing himself magnificently in the splendid and richly ornamented robes in which he had been accustomed to appear upon the stage at length he reappeared and took his position on the side of the ship with his harp in his hand he sang his song accompanying himself upon the harp and then when he had finished his performance he leaped into the sea the seamen divided their plunder and pursued their voyage arian however instead of being drowned was taken up by a dolphin that had been charmed by his song and was borne by him to tenaris which is the promontory formed by the southern extremity of the peloponnesus there arian landed in safety from tenaris he proceeded to corinth wearing the same dress in which he had plunged into the sea on his arrival he complained to the king of the crime which the sailors had committed and narrated his wonderful escape the king did not believe him but put him in prison to wait until the ship should arrive when at last the vessel came the king summoned the sailors into his presence and asked if they knew anything of arian arian himself 
had been previously placed in an adjoining room ready to be called in as soon as his presence was required the mariners answered to the question which the king put to them that they had seen arion in tarentum and that they had left him there arion was then himself called in his sudden appearance clothed as he was in the same dress in which the mariners had seen him leap into the sea so terrified the conscience-stricken criminals that they confessed their guilt and all were punished by the king a marble statue representing a man seated upon a dolphin was erected at Tenerus to commemorate this event where it remained for centuries afterward a monument of the wonder which arion had achieved at length aliadus died and croesus succeeded him croesus extended still further the power and fame of the lydian empire and was for a time very successful in all his military schemes by looking upon the map the reader will see that the aegean sea along the coasts of asia minor is studded with islands these islands were in those days very fertile and beautiful and were densely inhabited by a commercial and maritime people who possessed a multitude of ships and were very powerful in all the adjacent seas of course their land forces were very few whether of horse or of foot as the habits and manners of such a sea-going people were all foreign to modes of warfare required in land campaigns on the sea however these islanders were supreme croesus formed a scheme for attacking these islands and bringing them under his sway and he began to make preparations for building and equipping a fleet for this purpose though of course his subjects were as unused to the sea as the nautical islanders were to military operations on the land while he was making these preparations a certain philosopher was visiting at his court he was one of the seven wise men of greece who had recently come from the peloponnesus croesus asked him if there was any news from that country i heard said the philosopher that the inhabitants of the islands were preparing to invade your dominions with a squadron of ten thousand horse croesus who supposed that the philosopher was serious appeared greatly pleased and elated at the prospect of his seafaring enemies attempting to meet him as a body of cavalry no doubt said the philosopher after a little pause you would be pleased to have those sailors attempt to contend with you on horseback but do you not suppose that they will be equally pleased at the prospect of encountering lydian landsmen on the ocean croesus perceived the absurdity of his plan and abandoned the attempt to execute it croesus acquired the enormous wealth for which he was so celebrated from the golden sands of the river pactolus which flowed through his kingdom the river brought the particles of gold 
in grains and globules and flakes from the mountains above and the servants and slaves of croesus washed the sands and thus separated the heavier deposit of the metal in respect to the origin of the gold however the people who lived upon the banks of the river had a different explanation from the simple one that the waters brought down the treasure from the mountain ravines they had a story that ages before a certain king named midas rendered some service to a god who in his turn offered to grant him any favor that he might ask midas asked that the power might be granted him to turn whatever he touched into gold the power was bestowed and midas after changing various objects around him into gold until he was satisfied began to find his new acquisition a source of great inconvenience and danger his clothes his food and even his drink were changed to gold when he touched them he found that he was about to starve in the midst of a world of treasure and he implored the god to take back the fatal gift the god directed him to go and bathe in the pactolus and he should be restored to his former condition midas did so and was saved but not without transforming a great portion of the sands of the stream into gold during the process of his restoration croesus thus attained quite speedily to a very high degree of wealth prosperity and renown his dominions more widely extended his palaces were full of treasures his court was a scene of unexampled magnificence and splendor while in the enjoyment of all this grandeur he was visited by Solon, the celebrated grecian lawgiver who was travelling in that part of the world to observe the institutions and customs of different states croesus received Solon with great distinction and showed him all his treasures at last he one day said to him you have travelled Solon over many countries and have studied with a great deal of attention and care all that you have seen i have heard great commendations of your wisdom and i should like very much to know who of all the persons you have ever known has seemed to you most fortunate and happy the king had no doubt that the answer would be that he himself was the one i think replied Solon, after a pause that tellus an athenian citizen was the most fortunate and happy man i have ever known tellus an athenian repeated croesus surprised what was there in his case which you consider so remarkable he was a peaceful and quiet citizen of athens said Solon. he lived happily with his family under a most excellent government enjoying for many years all the pleasures of domestic life he had several amiable and virtuous children who all grew up to maturity and loved and honored their parents as long as they lived at length when his life was drawing toward its natural termination a war broke out with a neighboring nation and tellus went with the army to defend his country he aided very essentially in the defeat of the enemy 
but fell at last on the field of battle his countrymen greatly lamented his death they buried him publicly where he fell with every circumstance of honour ceylon was proceeding to recount the domestic and social virtues of tellus and the peaceful happiness which he enjoyed as the result of them when croesus interrupted him to ask who next to tellus he considered the most fortunate and happy man ceylon after a little farther reflection mentioned two brothers cleobus and beto private persons among the greeks who were celebrated for their great personal strength and also for their devoted attachment to their mother he related to croesus a story of a feat they performed on one occasion when their mother at the celebration of some public festival was going some miles to a temple in a car to be drawn by oxen there happened to be some delay in bringing the oxen while the mother was waiting in the car as the oxen did not come the young men took hold of the pole of the car themselves and walked off at their ease with the load amid the acclamations of the spectators while their mother's heart was filled with exultation and pride croesus here interrupted the philosopher again and expressed his surprise that he should place private men like those whom he had named who possessed no wealth or prominence or power before a monarch like him occupying a station of such high authority and renown and possessing such boundless treasures croesus replied ceylon i see you now indeed at the height of human power and grandeur you reign supreme over many nations and you are in the enjoyment of unbounded affluence and every species of luxury and splendour i cannot however decide whether i am to consider you a fortunate and happy man until i know how all this is to end if we consider seventy years as the allotted period of life you have a large portion of your existence yet to come and we cannot with certainty pronounce any man happy till his life is ended this conversation with ceylon made a deep impression upon croesus's mind as was afterward proved in a remarkable manner but the impression was not a pleasant or a salutary one the king however suppressed for the time the resentment which the presentation of these unwelcome truths awakened within him though he treated ceylon afterward with indifference and neglect so that the philosopher soon found it best to withdraw croesus had two sons one was deaf and dumb the other was a young man of uncommon promise and of course as he only could succeed his father in the government of the kingdom he was naturally an object of the king's particular attention and care his name was Attis. he was unmarried he was however old enough to have the command of a considerable body of troops and he had often distinguished himself in the lydian campaigns one night the king had a dream about Attis, which greatly alarmed him he dreamed that his son was destined to die of a wound 
received from the point of an iron spear the king was made very uneasy by this ominous dream he determined at once to take every precaution in his power to avert the threatened danger he immediately detached Attis from his command in the army and made provision for his marriage he then very carefully collected all the darts javelins and every other iron-pointed weapon that he could find about the palace and caused them to be deposited carefully in a secure place where there could be no danger even of an accidental injury from them about that time there appeared at the court of croesus a stranger from phrygia a neighboring state who presented himself at the palace and asked for protection he was a prince of the royal family of phrygia and his name was adrastus he had had the misfortune by some unhappy accident to kill his brother his father in consequence of it had banished him from his native land and he was now homeless friendless and destitute croesus received him kindly your family have always been my friends said he and i am glad of the opportunity to make some return by extending my protection to any member of it suffering misfortune you shall reside in my palace and all your wants shall be supplied come in and forget the calamity which has befallen you instead of distressing yourself with it as if it had been a crime thus croesus received the unfortunate adrastus into his household after the prince had been domiciliated in his new home for some time messengers came from mysia a neighboring state saying that a wild boar of enormous size and unusual ferocity had come down from the mountains and was lurking in the cultivated country in thickets and glens from which at night he made great havoc among the flocks and herds and asking that croesus would send his son with a band of hunters and a pack of dogs to help them destroy the common enemy croesus consented immediately to send the dogs and the men but he said that he could not send his son my son he added has been lately married and his time and attention are employed about other things when however Attis himself heard of this reply he remonstrated very earnestly against it and begged his father to allow him to go what will the world think of me said he if i shut myself up to these effeminate pursuits and enjoyments and shun those dangers and toils which other men consider it their highest honour to share what will my fellow-citizens think of me and how shall i appear in the eyes of my wife she will despise me croesus then explained to his son the reason why he had been so careful to avoid exposing him to danger he related to him the dream which had alarmed him it is on that account said he that i am so anxious about you you are in fact my only son for your speechless brother can never be my heir Attis said in reply that he was not surprised 
under those circumstances at his father's anxiety but he maintained that this was a case to which his caution could not properly apply you dreamed he said that i should be killed by a weapon pointed with iron but a boar has no such weapon if the dream had portended that i was to perish by a tusk or a tooth you might reasonably have restrained me from going to hunt a wild beast but iron-pointed instruments are the weapons of men and we are not going in this expedition to contend with men the king partly convinced perhaps by the arguments which Addis offered and partly overborne by the urgency of his request finally consented to his request and allowed him to go he consigned him however to the special care of adrastus who was likewise to accompany the expedition charging adrastus to keep him constantly by his side and to watch over him with the utmost vigilance and fidelity the band of huntsmen was organized the dogs prepared and the train departed very soon afterward a messenger came back from the hunting-ground breathless and with a countenance of extreme concern and terror bringing the dreadful tidings that Addis was dead adrastus himself had killed him in the ardor of the chase while the huntsmen had surrounded the boar and were each intent on his own personal danger while in close combat with such a monster and all were hurling darts and javelins at their ferocious foe the spear of adrastus missed its aim and entered the body of the unhappy prince he bled to death on the spot soon after the messenger had made known these terrible tidings the hunting train transformed now into a funeral procession appeared bearing the dead body of the king's son and followed by the wretched adrastus himself who was wringing his hands and crying out incessantly in accents and exclamations of despair he begged the king to kill him at once over the body of his son and thus put an end to the unutterable agony that he endured this second calamity was more he said than he could bear he had killed before his own brother and now he had murdered the son of his greatest benefactor and friend croesus though overwhelmed with anguish was disarmed of all resentment at witnessing adrastus's suffering he endeavored to soothe and quiet the agitation which the unhappy man endured but it was in vain adrastus could not be calmed croesus then ordered the body of his son to be buried with proper honors the funeral services were performed with great and solemn ceremonies and when the body was interred the household of croesus returned to the palace which was now in spite of all its splendor shrouded in gloom that night at midnight adrastus finding his mental anguish insupportable retired from his apartment to the place where Addis had been buried and killed himself over the grave ceylon was wise in saying that he could not tell whether wealth and grandeur were to be accounted as happiness 
till he saw how they would end croesus was plunged into inconsolable grief and into extreme dejection and misery for a period of two years in consequence of this calamity and yet this calamity was only the beginning of the end End of chapter four